0: Thank you for joining us for this broadcast from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. We hope that you will subscribe and will share our broadcast with others. Now we take you to the pulpit of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ.
1: Well, good morning once again. Want to you take your Bibles and open them to First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter five. We're going to wrap up our time in the book of First Thessalonians today. I've really enjoyed. Uh, the time that we have spent together in this book, uh, as we've talked about our identity in Christ and, and what that means for us, and how we're supposed to live and act, um, and and how we kind of fit into the body of Christ together. Um, last week, I, I, I'm going to tell you, I really, I, I'm like you a lot of times. Uh, a lot of times, I uh, can be guilty of of spending time getting ready to work into a sermon on Sunday morning, and then. Uh, sit down Monday morning and and that sermon's over, that sermon's done, and I'm kind of pouring into the next thing, the next lesson, the next idea, uh, and I get kind of more forward focused than what we've just talked about focused. And I know, uh, I'll just be real upset where you've sat before in my life. There There are probably some Sunday mornings I could be like, all right, what did I preach about last week? And half of you couldn't tell me what I preached about last week. And that's okay, I don't hold it against you, not at all, because sometimes I forget what I preached on Last week, but last week's sermon, as we talked about uh, the return of Jesus and the resurrection, I'd spent a lot of time in that kind of lesson and I was kind of there was a part of me that was kind of let down that that kind of study process was over and then I got to really reading into the next chapter um, and, and I have taught first Thessalonians a number of different times, but it, it hit me that the section that we're going to talk about today uh, was the first a uh, passage of scripture that I preached my first like real sermon, not you know one of those youth devotional nights, but a night that uh, I was called to uh, fill in at the Waterloo Church of Christ in Waterloo, Alabama. There, a preacher had had a uh, a horsing accident and had broke his leg, and they were uh, they called and asked if we had some youth guys that could come and 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 fill in. And this particular passage, I was that Sunday night, and I remember. I mean, I was, I was fired up. I was ready to go. I was 16 years old. I was, I was it's going to be the greatest sermon that anybody had ever heard, or at least that group of people had ever heard. And I had eight pages worth of notes and I was done in seven minutes. Seven minutes. Some of you are thinking, well, can we be done in seven minutes today? I don't think I can say my name in seven minutes anymore. <laughs> but as I was studying this passage this week and looking at it, One of the things that it made me think about, at least in my own life, is is how we grow as Christians and how the same passage that we look at today and we live our life for the next couple of years, you can come back to that passage and it can mean something new, it can mean something different, it can touch you in a different way, you'll realize something that you had never realized before. And as I was going through this text this week and looking at it and thinking about it in certain ways, uh, so, something kind of touched me and hit me uh, that, that really kind of uh, propelled me into this, this study this week. Because, you know, Paul spends a lot of time talking, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but he talks about who we are. Who we are as Christians and, and really focusing our identity as being grounded in Christ. And then he, he gets to chapter four and he says, you need to live this way because there's going to come a time where you're going to be judged by God. You're going to stand before God. You're going, you're going to have your opportunity to receive your rewards that come from being a child of God. And now as we kind of transition into, as we kind of transition into the very end of the book, he he lets us know, Hey, this now, is about you choosing who you're going to be. This is about making up your mind of what your identity is going to be and how you're going to follow Christ. And this is what I was thinking about this week. This is what kind of hit me. And um, Neil posted, I think, on our, on our Facebook page, something very similar to this yesterday. But this idea, every church has a choice to lovingly surrender to God's Spirit or to allow negativity to undermine its mission. And, and I thought about this this week because, because as I look at the world around me, as I look at the situation that we're in in our country, the things that we face, the things that we deal with day to day, uh, as I watch the news and I, and, I, and I hear about things and I see politicians talk about this on this side and that on the other side, I believe that our nation as a whole has tilted to a negative mindset a little bit, an argumentative mindset a little bit. Um, And that comes when there's frustrations that, that, that comes when you go to the grocery store, and, and, and I've got a big family, and our our grocery bills a lot more than some because of the size of our family, but we bought six bags at Walmart the other day of, of just little things that we needed, and the and the price of that just totally blew my mind, just just shocked me of, of how much, so little cost. And then, how many of you have taken out a loan this week to get gas? Anybody? Anybody taken out a loan this week to get gas? Just me? Okay. Okay. Um, you know, and, and, and those type of things, they frustrate us, don't they? Those type of things frustrate us. And when we get frustrated, our attitude can tend to become what? Negative. Usually, positivity very rarely comes out of frustration. That's why it's called frustration, right? And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can let that frustration in the world sense creep into our attitude, creep into our heart. And then as we begin to deal with each other, as we begin to walk with each other and live with each other, we let those worldly frustrations come in and affect our spiritual mindset, although there really shouldn't be a difference, but it affects our spiritual mindset. And if we're not careful, we allow negativity to become something that we're fighting amongst ourselves. So we have to make up our mind as an individual and as a church. Are we going to lovingly surrender to God's Spirit Okay, and let God's Spirit dictate and push us where we need to go? Or are we going to allow negativity to undermine its mission? Whose mission? God's mission, God's Spirit's mission, the mission of making disciples, of being like Christ, and helping other people become like Christ. And as we read this section and through this section, what I've kind of gathered from it is he says, look, in a nutshell, you are this in Christ. Therefore, you make up your mind. Are you going to live in a positive way or are you going to live in a negative way? And he's going to talk about some things that will cause us to live in a positive or in a negative. But this idea is so important because someone told me one time, I was dealing with some things in my own life, and he says, your perception defines your reality. And I think that's very true. Your perception defines your reality. And if we go through life with a negative perception, And we're kind of we've kind of got that negative filter in our life. Our reality around us is going to be perceived as what negative. If I'm a half uh, a glass half full kind of person, every situation I look at is going to be half full. Now the flip side of that: if I'm a positive person, if I choose to live in a positive frame of mind, if I frame things things in a positive way, no matter what's going on, then things around me will seem more positive. And and churches can can do that. We can be, you know, look at things in, in a negative kind of sense, or we can choose to look at things in a positive kind of sense. And those things are so important. If we make up our mind to be a loving church, full of God's Spirit, then that's going to help us as we have to face and deal with challenges to look at those challenges and deal with them in a positive way. Can you deal with a negative thing in a positive way? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Paul's going to talk about some things here, and and, and we're going to dig into some of these things together this morning. The first thing that I want you to see from this whole book, as we wrap up the end of it, and really from a lot of Paul's writing, is that the indicative comes before the imperative. The indicative comes before the imperative. Now, someone raise your hand and tell me exactly what that means. Raise your hand if you're like, okay, that's a great statement, but I have no clue. Have no clue. Okay. So the word indicative carries the idea of a state of being or who we are, okay? So, and then imperatives are like the things that you must do, you have to do. And so here's what I want you to see from this entire study, first and foremost, is who we are comes before what we do, comes before what we do. Now, let's back that statement up just a little bit and let's let's not have any confusion because I don't want any confusion. Once you become a child of god that, that that is the first step in this process. having your sins washed away, um, Jesus says, you know believe, um, believe and be baptized, and you shall be saved uh, Peter says on the day of judgment acts two thirty eight repent, be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the holy Spirit. We've talked about that within this lesson okay we've talked about the the words from first Peter of of your baptism now saves you, not the, just not the removal of dirt, but the, the pledge of a good conscience to God through the power of the resurrection in Jesus' case. So we can have all, we got, we got all these. That's the first thing, okay? You become a child of God. You become a child of God. Now, I am now a child of God. I've gone through that process. I've had my sins washed away. I've been baptized. Okay, I'm in that saved state with Jesus. That's where this comes in. The indicative now comes before the imperative. Who I am comes first. And I think that's something that sometimes within our fellowship, within maybe our history, within our past, that we've taught maybe the other way around, that the imperatives come before the indicatives. Or put it this way, What we do makes us who we are. If I want to be holy, if I want to be holy, then I have to do these things to be holy. Okay, does that make sense? Paul says, though, you are, so go do. He does not say go do so you can become. You're already a child of Christ. Now, in my research this week, I came across something that was very interesting. It's, It's from... Um, it's from a book called uh, Jesus Now, and um, he, he says that there are 30 different things that once you become a child of God, you are defined by. You are defined by these things, not by doing anything else than becoming a child of God. Let me read some of them to you real quickly. Not all 30 of them, but he says, when you become a child of God, you are dead to your sins. You have been made alive with Christ. You are born of God. You are God's masterpiece. You are an heir of God. You are more than a conqueror. You are beloved by God. You are free in Christ. You are forgiven. You are healed. You are strengthened. You have Christ living inside of you. You are a citizen of heaven. You have everlasting life. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. God is for you even when others are against you. And that's just a few of those things. There's 30 of these things that he says, when you become a child of God, you are these things. That is what defines you. And you don't have to do anything to have those things other than be a child of God. Now, like I said, sometimes we're backwards in that. Sometimes we teach you have to do this and this and this and this to have this in God or to be right with God. If you really study this book, if you really study this book, Paul spends, there's five chapters in this book, Paul spends three chapters of the five talking about who we are before He talks about what we need to be doing. And that really jumped out to me this go-around. Because I want you to know that there is value in your salvation. There is a purpose to your salvation. And it's not just to make you work. It is your salvation, that moment you become a child of God, it changes your identity. And that's what these 30 things are really about. It changes your identity. It changes your state of being. It changes who you are at the most core, fundamental level, at the spirit level inside of you. And I want you to know that this morning, that there is value in your salvation. It changes and makes you something very special to God, and should make us very special to each other. Now, wh- wh- why 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 make that difference? Why why say it's about being and then doing rather than doing to become. And to me, to me as I've studied this week, it's an issue of motivation. It's an issue of motivation. You see, if I'm working in this process of I have to do this, do this, do this to then become this, it will be easy for me to stand back and go, I'm never going to get there. This is unattainable. We've talked about this before. God says, be holy because I am holy. And a lot of us hear that statement and go, there's no way that I can ever be holy. How many of you feel that way? There's no way. I can never be holy like God. But God's not going to tell you to do something that you can't do. Agreed? If God says, be holy because I'm holy, guess what you can become? Say it. What can you become? You can do it. But if we have this idea that the only way I can become holy is to hit this mark and then this mark and then this mark and then this mark, it's going to be so easy for me to stand back here and go, there's no way I'll ever get there. I think the reason we feel like I can't be holy because God is holy is because we don't feel like we can do enough to be holy. And that statement is true, but our relationship with God is not framed that way. It's not framed that way. He says, you've become a child of God. Guess what? You are holy. You are holy. Now, if I look at this and say... I have already obtained these things. I am these things. These are gifts from God. Then I can find motivation to then go serve. I have these things from God. I appreciate these things from God. I love these things from God. And as a show of my love and appreciation to God, I will now go do for God. It's an issue of motivation. I had this kid in my youth group when I was in McMinnville, and I've never forgot this statement. And he says, when I, we were talking, I was talking about setting the bar in your life. And he goes, when I set the bar, I set it as low as I can, which was completely backwards from what I was talking about, right? And I was talking about what setting the bar where setting the bar in your life high, you know, clear that bar, live up here. And I go, great. I go, why do you want to set the bar so low? He goes, that way I know I'll clear it every day. And that's true. And that really, I thought about that and I thought about that mindset of God wants us to succeed. In this walk with him. He has not set the standard so high that we can't live it. He said, You are these things. You're saved already. Don't question it. Don't, don't worry about that. I, I I have given you my spirit. Okay, I've given you my spirit. Just live this life. I've got all this other stuff taken care of. Just serve me because of how much you love me now. So it's not that the imperatives aren't there. It's not that the indicatives aren't there. It's just sometimes I feel like maybe we teach it in a sense that makes our Christian walk somewhat unobtainable to those from the outside looking in or for those young Christians. But I want you to know that you are these things in Christ. And because of those things, there is a life that you can live to show Him how much you appreciate those things. And that brings us kind of to the next idea here uh the the imperatives from our study from this particular book the things that we need to do the do's and the don'ts if you will from this particular text so we'll look and see what those are um and, and this is the way I want you to look at it these these imperatives here are we can live one way and be a positive church or we can live another way and we can be a negative church okay this this is all about framing in these ideas so he says the way you have to live the first thing he mentions here is the way we live towards our leaders or towards our elders and in this particular passage we're going to look at he says respect them, think highly of them, and get along with them So there it is so let's look at our, our text first Thessalonians chapter five verses twelve and 13 together okay Now we ask you brothers and sisters to acknowledge those who work hard among you who care. For you in the Lord, and who admonish you, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. I'm going to tell you what I have. Um, I've worked under a handful of different elderships, a number of different elders. Uh, I've worked in a few different congregations. Everybody's every church's relationship with their eldership is is different and has its own personality and different things. I have never though in um. I have never seen a test of church relationship with their elders in the way that I did during COVID, and and not just here, across the board in churches. Um, Most people, let's, let's, let's just be real, let's just be honest for a minute, most people love their elders when their elders don't do anything that rock the boat. Correct? When the elders just do what's always been done, or they do what the majority of people want done, um, everybody's usually pretty happy with the elders. Um, it, it's when the elders have to make decisions that, that um, are challenging or hard that that tends to get people a little ruffled. And one of the things that's interesting in our relationships with our elders of the church is... Again, we think about our world and our society. We live in a society that is a democratic society where we always have a vote and a, and a say in the, in the laws and the things that go along around us and, and in the, the leadership that leads us in our country. You know, we're one of the very few countries that can lead a revolt a revolt against its leadership every four years and get rid of one party and add another and it be peaceful. Okay? Most of the time, that involves war in other countries. But we get to do that every four years. We get to completely, if we so choose, overturn our government and put new people. That, that is something that does not happen really the way it does here anywhere else in the world. And it's such a blessing. We get a say. And so sometimes we bring that into the church and we go, well, I should have a say in the process. I don't like what the elders decided, so I'm going I'm to have a say in this process. I want us to understand something first as we think about our elders, always frame it with this idea that our elders are ordained leaders from God. They are ordained leaders from God. One of the interesting things in my relationship with elders is I like to have a friendly, brotherly relationship with the men that I serve under. But along with that, I also have to realize that there are times that they are my brother and they deal with me in that sense. And then there are times where they are my elders and they are my boss, if you will. And I have to respect that relationship and that dynamic. And I have to be able to notice that and see that. And so in those moments, what does he say here? He says, acknowledge those who work hard among you who care for you in the Lord. And and that's something I want you to know about the leaders of this church is that our leaders, our elders, they care for you. They care for you. They they, they think about you. They pray for you. They worry about you. They're concerned about your life. And he says, hold them in the highest regard. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work and live in peace. With each other, and so this is what he says. He says, "Respect them, okay? Not just in the room, not just to their face, but away from here." One of the things that I make sure that is is if the elders ever make a decision that I don't agree with and that I don't like, and I wish it had gone a different way, I don't ever want anybody to know that I've disagreed with them. I don't, because it's not good for you to hear me say, "Oh, well, they made this decision, but I don't like it," okay? Because it causes division, it causes friction. I don't ever go out and talk about those things. And I think highly of them. Then he says, get along with them. And sometimes that can be a challenge when you have a difference of opinion or a different direction or a different idea. But he says, look, if you're going to be a positive church, it starts with how you respect your leaders. And if you don't respect those, then it's going to trickle down in negative ways. But if you do respect them, it's going to trickle down in positive ways. So the first imperative here is how we look at our leaders and our elders. He says, respect them, think highly of them, and get along with them. Then the next imperative is towards our brothers and sisters, towards each other. All right, towards each other. He says, warn, encourage, help, and stop keeping score. Okay, let's see what he says here. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that no one pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So let's break this down for a second. First, he's, he's got three kind of categories here. He says, warn, encourage, and be patient, Okay. Now, I think these are interesting things because he first he says, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Let's, let's back up and just look at this word idle for just a second. Sometimes people who are idle, sometimes people who are disheartened or maybe not involved can look from the outside as the same type of person. I'm just not doing a whole lot. I'm not really that involved. But these words here first and foremost tell, first and foremost tell me, that I have to know you to know where I'm, to know how I'm supposed to deal with you, to know how I'm supposed to approach you. Do I, If I don't know you, I may not know if you're idle or if you're disheartened. I may not know if you're disruptive or if you're just really frustrated and down and just need some encouragement, okay? But the first thing he says to do here is there comes a time and a place where our brothers and sisters who just sit there and decide not to do anything and then in the process cause problems, he says, Warn those people. Warn those people to not be that way. Tell them, hey, look, this isn't allowed. We're not doing negative. We're not doing negative. We're not doing disruptive, okay? We're not just going to sit here and, and lob grenades into the situation. And I think that's a difficult thing to do because a lot of people think... I had this conversation one time with an elder at another place. It was an interesting conversation. A lot of people think the lack of conflict equals peace listen to that for just a second the lack of conflict equals peace that's a lot of people's mindset okay so there may be tension between Jonathan and I but as long as I keep him at a distance and I don't create conflict and we don't have a knockdown, drag out argument then there's peace in that okay but is that really true we know that's not true Sometimes conflict is the only way to get to what? Peace. And not negative conflict, but saying, okay, this is the problem. This is the issue. This is the challenge. You need to work on this. I need to work on this. We need to work through this together. Okay? Warn them and say we're not going to. So sometimes we have to work through difficult moments to get to peace. But then the next thing here is encourage the disheartened. Okay? Encourage the disheartened. We have to sometimes roll our sleeves up and say, I don't know what's going on, but, but I'm here. And, and I just want to be here with you. All right? This is about relationships. This, 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 right, this, this verse is so much about relationships. That if we don't have relationships with people, we don't know where they are. Okay? And then help the weak. But then the last idea here is what? What does he say? Be patient with some people. It's not what he says as a Tyler. What does he say? Be patient with everyone. Even the ones who are causing problems. The ones you're most frustrated with. Just be patient with them. And then he goes, and and this is so human nature, make sure that no one pays back wrong for wrong. Don't keep score. You got me, so I'm going to get you. But always strive to do what is best for yourself. Is that what it says? This verse has nothing to do with your feelings whatsoever. It has to do with whose? The other people. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Your feelings aren't even mentioned in there, are they? They are. But it's mentioned in someone else making sure you're taken care of, not you taking care of yourself. Spend your time and energy taking care of other people, and then other people will spend their time and energy taking care of you. That's how we create positive things in our church. Um, towards yourself. Towards yourself. He talks about yourself here. He says, Rejoice, pray, and say thank you. Starting in verse 16, rejoice always. I love this. This is a command, although we take it as a strong suggestion sometimes, because sometimes we're negative Nancy's and we don't rejoice in things. But he says, Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Okay. So he says, look, in your own life, you need to have a sense of joy. Once I realize that I am all of these things that I mentioned in Christ, I should have an abundance of joy. All right. I should overflow with joy. That should be where I am. That should be my mindset. That should be my disposition. I should be a joyful, Person. If I'm not a joyful person, then I don't understand and grasp who I am in Jesus. I truly believe that. If you're not a joyful person, you don't understand the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. You have put out the spirit's fire, as he's going to talk about here in just a moment. But he says, be rejoiceful always. Always be prayerful about things. And then when you are talking to God, give thanks, regardless of what's going on in your life, for this is God's will. This is what God wants for you out of your life. He moves on. He said, then there's this idea of what we do towards God. He says, don't distinguish or despise the Spirit's work. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. This is an interesting verse to me because it is the opposite side of the coin from a biblical perspective of what's going on in Corinth, okay? So in Corinth, as you read the book of 1 Corinthians, they have really bought into the idea of Spirit-led things, right? I mean, to the point that they're like, hey, the Spirit's given me this and given you that, but I'm better than you because of what the Spirit's given me, my my gift and, and, and the way I'm serving, I'm better than you. And like, they're taking it to a whole, like they're on the they're on this side of the spectrum. And Paul comes in, and he's got to pull them back from that. He's got to pull them back to the center of that. And this church in Thessalonica seems to be on the other side, almost to the point that they're afraid of the Spirit of God. And they're trying to put the Spirit out. And I think for a lot of us in the churches of Christ, this describes where we've been as a church. That we're afraid of the Spirit of God. I'm going to tell you why I think we're afraid. Two things. Two things. One is because of what other people say that the Spirit does and is. And we don't want, we think that's wrong. And so we don't want to be wrapped up or, or accused of being that at all. So we're going to run all the way over here and we're going to put it out and we're not going to have anything to do with it. And then, secondly, is this we like things we can quantify. We like things we can quantify. And in our minds, In our minds, we feel like we can quantify who God is and we can fit him in a box. God, the father. okay and then we think we can quantify Jesus, Jesus, God, the son. But then there's this mysticalness, if you will, sometimes that surrounds our thought of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. And those words seem unquantifiable, if that's a word, and we can't fit him in a box to make sense out of him so we just ignore Him. So we just ignore Him. And and Paul says, as you're dealing with your relationship with God, an imperative, a do and a don't here, is he says, don't quench the Spirit. And we do that in, in a couple of different ways, but I think ultimately we do that by putting our own desire over what the Spirit wants. Now, this is an interesting conversation because we can get into... The New Testament, you know, spiritual gifts and, and today's spiritual gifts, and to what degree does the Spirit guide us and, and give us ideas and thoughts and lead us? And we all believe that if we seek God's will, God's going to motivate us and, and, and push us in certain ways. But what I've seen, this goes back to respecting our elders and respecting each other is, is the elders may be spending some time praying about something and they may, they may be, they may feel that the spirit is leading them to make a certain decision. And the Spirit is really pushing them in that way. And they say, okay, we're going to pull the trigger and do this. The Spirit is leading us in this direction. And then my own personal desire is not in that direction, so I'm going to do everything I can to put that out. And in that moment, I'm breaking this command. Just because you don't want it doesn't mean the Spirit doesn't want to see it happen. But our own personal desires can put the Spirit's fire out quench that word is the word that means to drown out to to exhaust but he says look in those moments be diligent test them okay look at them from a true biblical perspective pray about those things and the good things hold on to them and if they're not good then don't do them get away from them have nothing to do with them but he says respect the spirit in the process of your walk with god we're running out of time so let's keep going here Here's the last thing that I want you to get that helps us frame things. The gift that keeps on giving. Paul starts out this book talking about grace, and as he ends it, he says, May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the One who calls you, is faithful, and will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's back up. You know what I've not heard a lot of lessons on lately? Verse 26. Greet all people with the holy kiss. Should we spend time on that or is COVID taking that out? I don't know. So um, That's supposed to be funny. Nobody laughed. That's okay. Back up one more. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He starts with grace and ends with grace. And this is what I want you to understand God gives us grace to start and finish the race. God gives us grace to start and finish the race. God is on your side this morning. I want you to know that God is on your God is pulling for you. God is rooting for you. God wants you to succeed in in this life as his child. He wants you to all these things that he has made you. He wants you to continue being those things. And he says, when you struggle with those things, understand, I'm right here beside you. I'm right here beside you. I'm in the boat with you. Jesus tells his disciples one night, he goes, Hey, get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. In the middle of the night, a storm comes up and they look at Jesus. He's asleep and says, Don't you care that I drown? He says, Do you still have no faith? He calms the storm. And I think he asked that question for a lot of reasons, but one reason is this Don't you realize who was in the boat with you? He says, I told you, let's go to the other side. And if Jesus says you're going to go to the other side, then where are you going to go? To the other side. And he says, My grace is right here with you. I'm here with you at the beginning of this journey. I'm going to be with you in the middle of it. I'm going to be right there with you at the end of it. God's grace gives us the ability to start and finish the race. And our identity can be grounded and rooted in that on this day. So that brings us to the end of this study of 1 Thessalonians. I hope that you have found it beneficial. I hope that you have grown in some way from it. I hope you've learned something from it. I hope that. Uh, This book has has, has touched you as it has touched me over this study together. Let's close our lesson with a word of prayer and then we'll have the invitation. God, we thank you for the chance to just be in your presence this morning. We thank you for those in this room. We thank you for those who have gone before us and have begun to live with you uh, in heaven as we all wait the coming of your son so that we can all spend eternity with you. God, we thank you for your spirits, and we thank you for Paul and his willingness to to listen to your spirit and write these words that we've studied over the last six weeks. We pray that we've been encouraged. We pray that we've been uplifted and that we continue to focus on who we are through you and continue to walk in that identity and always be known as a child of yours. God, I pray for those this morning whose identity is not rooted in you. As we've talked about, this process starts with becoming a child of yours, of having our sins washed away, of listening to your word and being baptized so that we can that we can so that we can truly come in contact with your grace. And from there, God, be with those that are struggling, that need your grace maybe more than others in this moment. Give them strength. Let them know that you are there. So in your Son's name we pray. Amen.
0: If this program has been beneficial to you, please consider subscribing on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast provider. Also, we'd love for you to leave us a five-star review, which will greatly assist us in getting the message of God's love and salvation to others. We'd love even more for you to join us in person. We are located at 2309 9th Avenue in Hagleyville, Alabama. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Be sure to join us again, and until then, remember, we are a Church of Christ caring for its community.